Dr. J. Marion Sims, Henrietta Lacks, and the Tuskegee Experiment. Perhaps these names ring a bell. Three very different, yet equally troubling stories that are connected by two common threads. The long-standing history of racism in the medical community and the importance of ethical data collection. Welcome to Operation Doctor, a podcast by the NPSI Med Club. I'm Sneha Thomas, the president of this club, and I'm joined by Varni Bhatnagar, the vice president, to host the first ever episode of this podcast, where we deep dive into ethical questions related to medicine. Each month, we choose a theme to base two articles and one podcast episode around. This month, February 2021, we invite you to celebrate Black History Month with us and explore the complicated relationship between race, ethics, and medicine. We hope you enjoy Operation Ethical Data Collection. First, let's take you back to 1845. A then 32-year-old doctor by the name J. Marion Sims was about to make a revolutionary discovery. Today, we know him as the father of modern gynecology, who developed several tools and techniques, such as the surgery for the repair of the vesico-vaginal fistula and instruments like the Sims Speculum and the Sims Sigmoid Catheter. And during his lifetime in the antebellum South, he was a well-regarded plantation doctor who created a hospital for the slaves he owned. Yeah, we know. So far, it seems like he was a good doctor and maybe even a compassionate slave owner. But that was quite far from the truth. Let's take a break from Dr. Sims and get to know three very important women, Lucy, Betsy, and Anarka. These are the three slave women that Sims operated on and the only three women to be named in his medical journals. Their owners brought them to Sims so that their vaginal fistulae could be repaired. However, in the 19th century, gynecology wasn't a fully developed practice yet, and Sims had little prior experience in the field. So these women were not offered expert treatment. They were more like experimental subjects. Sims performed his first operation on Anarka. Anarka was 17 years old, suffering from a vesico-vaginal fistula. Sims performed at least 30 operations on her from 1845 to 1849. Anarka's body is what Sims used as a pathway to perfect his technique. Lucy and Betsy similarly were subjects to to numerous operations. Despite the existence of anesthesia at the time, it was never administered to them, so they battled immense pain and other complications. In fact, Lucy almost lost her life due to blood poisoning. And after all of this pain, she wasn't even cured. After perfecting his technique on the vulnerable bodies of black women, Sims moved to New York City and resumed his practice. His work turned out to be so well respected that he was summoned to repair the fistula of Empress Eugenie, the Empress of France at the time. The difference was that when operating on his white patients, he used anesthesia, awarding them relief from the pain that the slaves were forced to endure. On one hand, Sims wrote in his journal that the slave women were desperate for treatment and consented to it. However, we have no way of knowing that. What we do know is that Sims had vested interest in in using their bodies to further his medical research. The owners also had vested interest as a vaginal fistula would render the slave unable to bear children or provide manual labor. And ultimately, is it even possible for slaves to give consent 
Legally, in the 1800s, all that was necessary for surgery to be performed on a slave was consent of the owner. Since they were considered to be property, it is a pressing question to ask whether their consent, or lack thereof, was given any importance at all. Next, let's travel forward in time to the 1st of August, 1920. A little black girl called Loretta Pleasant, who would later be named Henrietta Lacks, was born in Virginia. When she was just four years old, her mother passed away in childbirth, and Henrietta was sent to her maternal grandfather's house on a tobacco plantation. From a young age, Henrietta, nicknamed Henny by her doting family, worked hard as a tobacco farmer. When she was 14, she gave birth to her first son, and four years later, her first daughter. She married the man who fathered both of her children, David Lacks, at the age of 21 and moved to Maryland, where she had three more children with him. Her fifth child, Joseph Lacks, was born when she was 30 years old. The last birth was traumatic. She suffered a hemorrhage and was referred to Johns Hopkins Hospital, one of the few hospitals that treated black patients at the time. Howard W. Jones, her doctor conducted a biopsy on a clump of cells that he took from her cervix and concluded that she had cancer. She began radiotherapy for it instantly, and during her nine months of treatment, multiple samples of cells were taken from her cervix without her knowledge. George Otto Guy, a prominent cell biologist at Johns Hopkins University who had been collecting and testing on cancer cells for many, many years. Until early 1951, all of the cancer cells that he had performed trials on died within a matter of a few days and would only grow on glass surfaces, meaning that they were limited by space, until a new set of cells was brought to him. A cell line that, absurdly enough, grew rapidly. In fact, their numbers doubled every 20 to 24 hours. A cell line that was not bound by the surface area of a glass plate and could even float on dust particles to travel to different spaces. A cell line that was the first ever to yield successful results in vitro, that is, within other living organisms. The immortal HeLa cell line. The success of the HeLa line led to Guy quickly propagating and commercializing the cells, distributing them to researchers in the name of science. The problem is that the woman who these cells belonged to was never informed. In fact, by this point, Henrietta Lacks was already on her deathbed. The HeLa cell line has been instrumental in medical research since then. Numerous vaccines, such as those for polio, HPV, Zika, and mumps, were developed by testing them on HeLa cells. Research about cancer and various forms of cancer therapy was propelled forward by these cells. They were even sent on satellite missions to determine the effect of space travel on them. For a cell line that gave so much to science, it might shock you to hear that the Lacks family didn't even know that their matriarch cells were being used for research for 22 full years. Henrietta's name and other personal details, including her entire genome, were published without asking the family for permission. And to date, they have received no monetary compensation for the multi-billion dollar contribution that Henrietta Sells made within the industry. We're still in the same time period, two years before Henrietta had her first child, 
The year was 1932. An experiment commenced in Macon County, Alabama by the United States Public Health Service. They collaborated with the Tuskegee University and aimed to identify the natural history of untreated syphilis in men. It was due to last six months. The Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male The Tuskegee Syphilis Study for short. 600 African American men were enrolled in the study, of which 399 had the disease, and the 201 men without it were the control group. The men who signed up were promised free healthcare and testing, free meals, and a burial insurance by the federal government of the United States. Something might have struck out to you already. The title of the study was that of untreated syphilis, yet the participants were told that they would receive treatment. Do you see where this is going? Simply put, those promises were not kept. Firstly, after testing the men, they did not inform them of their diagnoses. Instead, they were told that they would be treated for bad blood, which is a colloquial term that was used to describe various conditions including syphilis and anemia. Next, even after identifying the men who were infected by syphilis, they were not given the treatment they were promised. They were instead given mildly effective treatments that contained toxic chemicals like arsenic and bismuth, or they were given disguised placebos. It's the year 1947. Penicillin is a cheap and readily available drug that is well known to be an effective treatment for syphilis, yet it wasn't administered to any participants. Now, one more thing should have stuck out to you. The study began in 1932 and the participants were told that it would last six months long. But this story continues well into 1947. In fact, it only comes to a close in 1972 when the unethical conditions of the study were leaked to the media by a whistleblower and it was forced to shut down. 40 years. Six months turned into 40 years. Over the four decades, many of the participants developed severe late-stage symptoms of syphilis, such as cardiovascular and psychological damage. Lots of the participants that were initially part of the control group had become infected. In fact, when the study was finally shut down, only 74 of the initial 600 participants were alive. 40 of the wives of the participants had contracted the disease and 19 children were born with congenital syphilis. All three of these stories point us towards three very important interconnected ethical standards in data collection. Bodily autonomy, informed consent and transparency. Bodily autonomy is defined as the inviolability of the human body that we have the right to decide what is done to it. Even in clinical settings, most patients are allowed to decide whether or not they want to pursue a certain course of treatment. Do not resuscitate orders, or DNRs, are an example of this, where patients can demand that CPR is not given to them if their heart stops beating, even if the doctor wants to save them. Now, imagine a situation where a patient wants to issue a DNR, but the doctor holds a gun to the patient's child's head and says, if you issue a DNR, I will kill your child. In that case, does the patient have real bodily autonomy? Sure, they're free to say, yes, I want that DNR. 
However, when saying no comes with such a huge price, that itself is an infringement on an individual's right to make their own decisions. This is exactly the ethics that come into play with respect to the slaves that Dr. Sims treated. Perhaps his autobiography is correct. Perhaps they did say yes to the operations. However, what value does a yes have if no is not even an option? Did those slaves have the right to say no and remain safe afterwards? Informed consent is defined as the procedure through which a competent subject, after having received and understood all the research-related information, can voluntarily provide their willingness to participate in a clinical trial. Transparency is defined as operating in such a way that it is easy for others to see what actions are performed. Both of these, of course, go hand in hand, and both were violated in the stories of Mrs. Lax and the Tuskegee experiment. With Mrs. Lax, she was never even told that a study was happening, let alone what was taken from her. The problem is that she was not the first person that this has happened to, and certainly won't be the last. For example, in the case of Moore versus Regents of the University of California in 1990, John Moore's cancer cells were taken and commercialized without his or his family's knowledge. The researchers made hefty sums of money, while the man whose cells without which they couldn't have done anything, earned nothing. The court ruled that Mr. Moore did not have any rights to his own discarded cells or to the profits made from them. This reflects a societal attitude that was present during Henrietta's time, Moore's time, and ours too. We seem to separate the research from the subjects. We look towards the researchers in awe, never bothering to question where their samples came from. But those cells belonged to Henrietta. Without her or her family's knowledge, her entire genome was published for the public to read. If that isn't a violation of privacy, we don't know what is. That never should have been done without the informed consent of the Lax family. With Mrs. Lax, we could say that it was a lie by omission. But with the Tuskegee study, they were just lies. The time frame, the diagnosis, the medication, the entire study was based on intransparency. Because not a lot of participants would willingly sign up to a study where their disease would remain untreated, despite treatments being available, just for the sake of science. The participants weren't able to give informed consent because they weren't informed about anything. What use is consent if you don't even know what your consent is being taken for? Ultimately, what makes these stories so difficult to retell is how despite the treatment of these people who had no say in the matter, these discoveries push medicine forward to what we have today. Except for the Tuskegee study though, that was pretty useless. But I guess the point is, at what cost did these discoveries come? Is it even worth it? Everything considered, we think not. Because science exists for the people. Healthcare exists for the people. Research is a service to the general public. A way to collect information that can change lives for the better. So what is the use of research if it fails the very population that it aims to inform? It's a massive irony, isn't it? 
the researchers of the Tuskegee study wanted to find out the long-term effects of syphilis to be able to help syphilis patients in the future, but in the process allowed lots of healthy people to get infected and stood by as many died because of their negligence. When data is collected without informed consent and full transparency, a hierarchy is revealed where crooked professionals and researchers take advantage of the helplessness of their patients, of victims. The effects of these massive breaches of trust are still felt today. Black people are incredibly underrepresented in medical studies because they simply are not willing to participate. And with good reason, they've been betrayed before and likely will be again. Therefore, it is crucial that researchers keep their ethical implications of their goals and methodologies in mind before conducting a study, so as to ensure that their data is collected in an ethically unambiguous manner and they are truly able to fulfill their duty to the community that they're supposed to help. So what do you think about all of this? Does the end justify the means? Do you think that for a breakthrough as monumental as healer cells, dabbling in poor ethics is worth it? Let us know on our Instagram account. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast for a monthly discussion about different ethical aspects of the healthcare industry. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. My name is Varuni. And my name is Sneha. And this was episode one of Operation Doctor.